how would I start? You probably notice I have a pile of material here that I've been collecting all week. Because there were a number of things that I wanted to say, but then I thought, well, how do they all come together? And uh, so while I sat this morning, I hoped for a revelation about how they would all come together. <laughs> and uh, it went something like this. Um, if I, I ended up thinking if I were going to have a, a title for what I was going to say today, it would probably be that I think uh, uh, kindness is contagious, or it's catching. Contagious is... But you know, I was, on, I was talking to somebody yesterday who made that remark. She was talking about having had a number of flus this season and colds and different things. Mm-hmm. She said, well, you know, I live here in the Northeast. She said, everything comes through, you catch everything. I thought to myself, what do you do? We catch everything. But I think only we don't only catch physical stuff that floats around. I think we catch everything. I read uh, I read uh, an article in this month's Vanity Fair, the most recent one, about um, information overload and how you catch uh, the the writer whose name at this moment is escaping me was talking about um, uh, having been he felt himself. As a journalist, he said, and all his life has been collecting information and putting it out. He said, there's been so much information in these last couple of months and so much talking about it and so many opinions about it. He said he suddenly felt that his whole mind was overwhelmed. He said, we have a new kind of illness called stimulus overwhelm, and it revs up the system and it can't relax. And then we spread it around with other people. We go tell them, and we rev it up some more. Maybe that's uh, maybe that's uh, part of the way that I'll get into talking about uh, why is it that this particular practice of taking a sabbatical in one's mind life and one's body life on a regular basis really is good for our, is good for us. Period. Good for our ability to see clearly, and good ultimately for our ability to catch what's wholesome, which is I think. Um, wisdom and kindness that's a reflection of wisdom. So I've been thinking about two things this week. I've been thinking about the fact that uh, when we see clearly enough, we don't get confused in our thinking. I think we're essentially kind. I think some people are extraordinarily kind. I think the, uh, the research on kindness is just in its nascent stages, the research on altruism. People are beginning to do that. That some people seem to have just a more um, ready uh, access to kindness than other people. I don't know whether it's going to turn out to be a gene or how we raise people. We like to think that when we raise people with some sort of spiritual framework, we condition them to kindness. You teach children in a religious tradition uh, when children come here. They learn about non-harming, not taking what isn't theirs, speaking gently and kindly. Learn about the, the in all religious traditions that I know about, there are fundamental rules of decent behavior that children learn from way before they're able to uh, maybe feel it as a natural response of empathic awareness <laughs> of what's going on in the world. You see what's going on in the world. It just so brings up, I think, a, a sense of compassionate response. But I think 
when it falls on a mind that's been listening to the value of a compassionate response, the value of kindness from when it's a child, maybe it falls better on them. Maybe I'll start by reading an article I've been saving about <clears throat> this last week. This is an article. I may have to read you all of it because it's so amazing. It's an article out of the New York Times about a, uh, a surgeon from India, lives half a year in India and half a year in the United States. Um, a hard name to pronounce. His name is Dr. Sharad Kumar Dikshrit. is said to do 35 to 40 operations a day on the disfigured children of India, a number so astonishing it seems to have been reported in error. When one meets a doctor at his apartment in Brooklyn, it's even more difficult to believe. The doctor looks awful. <laughs> Two heart attacks have destroyed 80% of his heart muscle. He is unable to walk more than a few steps without a wheelchair. His body gives the impression of being propped up on his black leather couch. Cancer of the larynx compels him to use a voice box. His clothing for a plastic surgeon whose humanitarian work has received international recognition and who received a $100,000 Hannah Neal World of Children Award in Columbus, Ohio last weekend is remarkably shabby. Still, the doctor is in good humor. Today, told he isn't looking so good, the 71-year-old surgeon agrees at once, enumerating his ailments with the satisfied vigor one has when proving the experts wrong. <laughs> I was declared dead in 1982, he begins cheerfully, with an accent of his native India. Uh, I can't, uh, my friend Jack can do an Indian accent very well, I can't do it. I had terminal cancer, that would be about it. I had terminal cancer of the larynx with metastases. They said you're going to live one year, right. It has been reported, doctor, that in India you do 35 to 40 operations. I do more than that, he says. I do 50. You work a 10-hour day, let's crunch the numbers. How long to uh, fix a cleft lip? 15 to 20 minutes. Droopy eyelids, 5 to 7 minutes. Crossed eyes, 3 minutes. The American doctors who go to India to work with him reportedly do seven to ten operations a day. Why do they do so many fewer? They're slow, he says. <laughs> so what do we have here, an eccentric or Gandhi on Ocean Parkway? In Brooklyn, where he lives six months of the year, his two-bedroom apartment is so cluttered with cartons and videos and medical papers, it's difficult to find a route to the living room. His thick black hair looks like the world's worst wig, although he insists it is not. After his second heart attack in 1994, he stopped going to the barber. He says, so much trouble. <laughs> Nor does he spend money on clothes. This suit was made in 1993, he says proudly of his charcoal gray pinstripe. I wear the suit, same suit every day for eight years, the same shirt, the same tie. Then every two weeks I get it dry clean. The suit is just to go out around the house. He wears traditional Indian clothing. Why only one suit? I decided it was very frivolous, not fitting the patients, he said. I have 50 suits hanging in the closet, but since 94, I decided to go to the bare minimum necessity. I lost interest in clothing. This is my life. Very simple. One suit, one hairbrush, one toothbrush, one. In India, he is revered. He founded the India Project, traveling clinics that perform facial reconstruction on poor children 33 years ago and works there free six months a year. Four patients may lie anesthetized in his operating room at the same time. While operating, he does not refresh himself with liquids. He does not want to waste time going to the toilet. He is not a board-certified plastic surgeon in the United States, but he was a surgeon at New York Methodist Hospital, and his work is supported by the American Society of Plastic Surgeons. Dr. Lester Silva 
chief of the Division of Plastic Surgery at Mount Sinai Medical Center, traveled with Dr. Dick Dixit to uh, India, calls him an ethical and moral giant. But who sets out to be a moral giant? Dr. Dixit, in his early nose job days, was social and fun-loving. He grew up in Warda, India, one of six children of a postmaster, graduated from medical school in India, moved to the United States in 1958 for more training, working in Fairbanks, Alaska. He skied, played tennis, got a pilot's license, sang on the radio. It was also in Fairbanks in 1978 that he suffered the first of his medical disasters. A car accident left the right side of his body paralyzed. He taught himself to operate with his left hand. Soon after he recovered, cancer of the larynx was diagnosed. It took him five years to recover his speech. He was also unlucky in love. There were two marriages and three children, but both wives left him. He thinks the time and money he spent in India may have been part of the problem, but what could he do? In India, a child born with a cleft lip cannot suckle and will die of starvation. It will be abandoned by the parents and be unable to, be unable to marry. Perhaps Dr. Dixit, a religious man, was also influenced by Gandhi, who lived in his hometown. I used to see him walking every evening when I was seven, eight, nine years old, he said. He was a simple person. He cooked his own food. The dhoti he wore, he washed it himself every day. I did not understand his philosophy of life, that service to God is through service to human beings, not in a church or a temple, until I was older. Did he ever hear Gandhi speak? He used to talk about politics, which I never understood, the doctor said. I've never been interested in politics. Isn't that amazing? Is that amazing? They have to frame that and put that up. It's just so... So I thought I would start with that. Especially, there's a, there are a couple of lines in it that catch me. One of them is he said, you know, maybe my running back and forth to India and spending so much time there, six months a year, and so much money on my project, really what uh, caused my marriages not to succeed. But what could I do? What could I do? It's a, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting point. What could I do? If you are called to do something that is morally compelling, what can you do? Um, I don't know. Maybe we could think, well, you have to keep your relationship. You know, how about your relationship or your few children that you have? I don't know. Sometimes people talk about the Buddha got up in the middle of the night and left his family, you know. Uh, you do know that, that the Buddha uh, was married and had a child and suddenly felt compelled, uh, not for himself, but on behalf of what he recognized was universal suffering, to figure out the end of suffering, and left his family. Got up in the middle of the night, left his family's wife and son. The end of that story turns out, of course, you know, there's a question about how much of it is mythical, and maybe it's all mythical, maybe it's all true that his wife and his son ultimately, uh, when his son grew up, all joined orders of monks and nuns and all became fully enlightened and fully liberated. So that story has a good end. But uh, he got up in the middle of the night and left his family because he was so compelled on the basis of the suffering in the world to do something about it. It's interesting for people to think about being called a moral and an ethical giant. What's a moral and an ethical giant? And do we have any? around. And what if a moral and ethical giant were to get on TV and say, uh, you want to know what's really happening in the world? I'll tell you. And uh, this is the story of the inequalities in the world. This is a story about how many people are suffering in the world. This is a story about, um, it's really true that half the world goes to sleep hungry every night. 
really true that 80% of the world lives in substandard housing? It's really true that we have 5% of the population in the United States and we use up 25% of the world's resources, energy resources every year. It's really true that of the developed countries of the world, we are the least supportive. We are on the list of foreign aid to uh, distressed areas. We are the last on the list, lowest on the list. Did you know that? Yesterday's New York Times editorial. The truth is, I'm not supposed to editorialize here, but I now am. Not only that, but on tape. Uh, Congress just last week uh, dismissed proposal for increased aid to poor nations. person who was in charge of that dismissal said, uh, we'd like to see what evidence, uh, we'd like to see evidence of what works before making new commitments. Because the truth is, this is Paul Krugman yesterday, that we know what works. Nobody expects foreign aid to perform miracles, to turn Mozambique into Sweden overnight. But more modest goals, such as saving millions of people a year from diseases like malaria, tuberculosis, are quite reachable for quite modest sums of money. This is the message of a commission report just released by the World Health Organization, which calls on advanced countries to provide resources for a plan to scale up the access of the world's poor to essential health services. The program would provide very basic items that many poor nations simply cannot afford, antibiotics to treat tuberculosis, insecticide-treated nets to control malaria, and so on. Price tag would be about 0.1% of advanced countries' income. The payoff would be at least 8 million lives each year. I have the sense that if someone uh, that was recognized as a person of moral and ethical, to be a moral and ethical giant, got on the TV, someone universally respected, and said, this is what's true, that we would do it. You know, that he goes on in this article to say America is lowest on the list of contributors, but it's, it's, a, it's not Americans, it's America. He said Americans are really very generous people. Someone got on and said, look, this is what you could do. We would do it. That people do that. That people do that. We do much more than that individually. I think we do it because it's in the nature of most people's hearts to be kind. And I think we do spiritual practice to clear our minds because when the minds are clear, we're kind. So that's how to come from kindness is contagious to it's a situation of our hearts, basically when we're not frightened or confused, to spiritual practice is what we do so that we won't be frightened or confused. That's how we get from A to B to C. So how many people saw Harry Potter? <laughs> and how many people saw Lord of the Rings? Okay. I did too, <laughs> in this last week. Did you like them? Yeah, I did too. I have to read both of them now. I hadn't read either of them before. Uh, but this is what I remembered. You tell me. Huh? The books are better. The books are better? This is what I remembered from Harry Potter, just from listening to it. This is the email I wrote to a friend of mine who had told me, go see Harry Potter. My, my email back to her is, Harry Potter is great. Uh, I took uh, my grandson, Eric, to Harry Potter. It is great. 
<laughs> I will make my whole Dharma talk out of it on Wednesday. <laughs> then I have the five lines from it that I will make. When the happiest person in the world looks into a mirror, he or she sees exactly what is outside the mirror. Do you remember that? Okay. How many people didn't see Harry Potter? Okay. At some point, Harry sees, in the school of magic where he is a student, he comes upon a mirror. And you look in the mirror, he looks in the mirror, and he sees his mother and father who uh, died when he was a baby. He sees himself there. He sees his mother and father. It's very touching. You see, my hair stands on end a little bit. And I said, don't you get goose pimples when I tell you? But especially if you saw it. His mother and father are in the mirror with him. And they're looking at him and they're smiling at him in the way that one would like to have a mother and father who looks at you and smiles at you. And you see his mother has her arm around him and her hand on his shoulder. And he reaches up to touch her hand. And he's looking in the mirror. And in the mirror, he connects with her hand. Then he looks down. And it's just his. And looks back, and she's there. Then his friend comes along. His friend looks in the mirror and sees something that Harry doesn't see. The friend, looking in the mirror, says, I'm telling the headmaster of the school how my team has just won their cosmic, their flying equivalent of rugby, actually. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And at that point, you get it. Because it's not so likely that this friend is going to be the captain of this flying equivalent of rugby, mm-hmm. that it's a wish fulfilling mirror, that um, what you really hope for, yearn for, shows up in the mirror. And then along comes the wise person, wisdom figure of the school, and says, When the happiest person in the world looks in this mirror, he or she, sees exactly what's outside the mirror. So you want to say that Dharma line back to me? What do you think it is? What's the, why, how would the Buddha have said that? All the joys and sufferings are inside of us. What else? Sure. What else? The heart that is open and at peace radiates a heart that's radiating peace. A heart that's open and peace radiates loving kindness. What else? Happiness is wanting what is rather than being. Happiness is not wanting other. Cause of suffering mm-hmm. is yearning. Tanha. Everything else fits into it. Tanha is the is the um, Pali word for thirst. Um, it, uh, it's often translated in English as craving. That means something that you need, some insufficiency that... You say, I have enough. I don't need anything. You're really free. I have enough. It's another way of saying I have everything. I have, a, I have my own heart that is a refuge of kindness. I can be there. don't need anything. It's like a scary thing sometimes to think about. What would that mean to not need? Would that mean not to be connected to the world? I don't think it means that. I don't think it means not to have wishes. I mean, as long as there's a world, there are things that I wish for it. And as long as there's a... Shelley, what? When I hear you say, I don't need anything, it 
to me, I hear, um, I'm satisfied with what I have. Mm. And I think if we're satisfied with what we have, then we don't need mm. other stuff. Mm-hmm. It's what, what we have is enough. And the, the interesting piece of the word satisfaction, we could, we could think about it a little bit. Uh, because I think when we're alive, we have certainly desires uh, of all kinds. I mean, get up every day we feel like eating again. And, you know, there are all kinds of things that we feel like doing we, that uh, arise in a cyclical manner if we're alive and healthy in a body. Uh, they just do. I don't think it's, and, and there are wishes that arise, you know. I, I wish my children be happy. Um, I'm not so happy when they're not happy. Um, but I think that the sense of a desire is, is more than the sense of a wish. There are lots of wishes. I wish that the world distributed its resources more equitably. I wish that people really knew what was true so that they would behave, I think, as people naturally respond. I think it's the difference between wishing and agonizing. Mm-hmm. Wishing and not being able to say, I wish it passionately, and it's not happening yet. I'll do everything that I can do to have it happen, and not cause myself extra anguish. Yeah, Edie. What I've been aware of and noticing in is that um, when I notice that there's an energetic change mm-hmm. in some part of myself, then it becomes noticeable. Mm-hmm. If I notice it, I get all excited, and I am uh, wanting to participate in, in an action that's beyond energizing or enjoying. There's a definite uh, shift. Mm-hmm. If, I'm, if I'm able to be aware of my whole self, Mm-hmm. That grasping, automatically, I can notice the resonance mm-hmm. of some sort in my, in my being. Mm-hmm. And when I'm able to do that and return to some kind of equanimity, mm-hmm. then I can wish fervently, but not mm-hmm. um, cast, mm-hmm. cast about without a rudder. Mm-hmm. Fervent is a good word. I want to keep it in mind because. Um, because it goes with equanimity, and often there's a the people have a, a wonder about can you have equanimity and want something fervently mm-hmm. and passionately, and I would like to hold the place of passion in uh, in the space of equanimity. I used to worry that there wasn't. I used to worry that uh, if I practiced enough, I'd somehow come out. Um, like a steamroller, I had run over my emotional system, sort of flat, nothing would move me. And I'd say, well, things come and go. <laughs> um, that's, first of all, it's not my experience. And second of all, I don't think it's the experience. I think we become more passionately alive in the space of equanimity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a very, yeah, yeah. It's a very interesting thing, this yearning and wanting. Susan? Um, I feel that if I'm clear about what I want, then I can be 
then you have a bad association. Mm-hmm. But to just, um, to just clearly see that it's really there. Mm-hmm. And that, and when I'm in that place, it's a place to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Shelly? Oh, sorry. I think there's a real difference between wanting, now when I, when, when I initially heard the wanting, I heard, Wanting a new TV, wanting a new car, wanting that new dress, you know, all those external things. I think that there's something very different between wanting those things and wishing something for somebody else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's an interesting point about the, the thing of feeling a lack. Feeling a lack or feeling a heart opening. Wishing for somebody else maybe is a, an act of generosity, you know, that, uh, an act of kindness. But here we come back to the mirror and Harry Potter. The happiest person in the world looks in the mirror and doesn't see anything that isn't outside the mirror. Nothing is lacking. Um, um. Um, my experience has been that um, at one time in my life I was in a place of wanting. <laughs> and it was a very familiar place. And then when I started getting what I wanted, I wasn't, it was difficult to reconcile that mm-hmm. with a, a whole shift. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That this is actually brings up the interesting question of, um, it's a whole other question, so let's like put a little post-it note on it and remember it. Uh, when we get used to a certain way of being, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden, that way of being doesn't define us anymore, makes this new whole question about who am I? If I'm not the person who's struggling to get something, if all of a sudden I've got it, then what's my story? And if I don't have a story, who am I? And if I can't figure out who I am, uh-oh. Um, in fact, one of the things I think that is freeing about paying attention, somebody said about just seeing the story as it's coming and going, is to see that every story is optional. We make up a story as our lives go along. So that when someone says, uh, what kind of a person are you? We say, oh, I'm a Leo, or I'm a this, or I'm a that. It's a shorthand, it's fine, I do that all the time. But to be defined by your story, I, I, at least in my experience, has made me sometimes feel that I'm not actually paying attention to what's going on. That maybe that used to be my story, but maybe something else is happening now. And maybe there isn't anyone who owns a story anyway. Um, I, I, I really, I remember this story. I told it years and years ago. I've been told it many, many years. Just now it popped into my mind. It's a great story. Someone told it to me. Let me see if I can remember it right. Um, I went to get, I bought a sewing machine 10 years ago from a sewing machine store in Santa Rosa, a little sewing machine store. Happened to pass it by, went in, ended up buying a sewing machine there. I had one person working in it one man working in it, cluttered with machines in, because he also repaired them. And I had to wait a long time to get waited on because there was someone who was waiting on, someone before me. It took him a while to get up to me. And, uh, but, you know, it was fine. I looked around at the machines. And I noticed while I was there that the uh, countertop where the cash register and all that things were, were was covered with little uh, uplifting sayings that you cut out of the Reader's Digest or from the bottom of things, all of the nature of you know, when life hands you lemons, make lemonade, you know, those kind of things, uplifting kind of remarks. 
I even went to the toilet at some point because I waited so long. I went in the bathroom and his mirror was full of uplifting remarks. And I saw him take a long time with the person he was with, carefully paying attention to them. Then he carefully paid attention to the next person, their whole transaction. And then they had both left. I was the only person there. He carefully paid attention to me. I ended up buying a sewing machine. Uh, but I really, it was a wonderful experience, and I was fine. I was reading all the... It was, it was an up mood to be there, and it was a cluttered up small little store. Still there, by the way. And so when I finished the transaction with the sewing machine, uh, I said to him something like... Um, told us in so long that we can construct the conversation exactly right, uh, about how cheerful of a person he was. It seemed to be his nature to be so cheerful and solicitous, thoughtful. In, in essence, everything about the way he behaved with people was kind, thoughtful about them, generous with his time. So I said, uh, did you have wonderful parents? And he said, no, as a matter of fact, I'm trying to remember how it was. My mother was an alcoholic. My father was physically very abusive. One way or the other, it's a terrible childhood. I said, uh, I said, really, I said, uh, it's amazing that you managed to grow up well. He said, well, truth is, I didn't grow up well. He said, I grew up terribly. He said, I was a mess in high school. First of all, I never learned how to read. I've read one book in my entire life. I was a mess in high school. I uh, got in all kinds of trouble. I did all the wrong things. I dropped out of school. My life was completely on a downhill course. I was angry. And he said, and uh, finally, it, there was nothing left to do with me. I had no job, no nothing. So I went in the Air Force. I went in the Marines. I went in the Marines. And he said, uh, so the first thing they did was uh, they issued us all Marine outfits. And uh, they gave us all haircuts. And he said, uh, we got six people got their haircut at one time in this barber shop. So we were all sitting there getting our haircuts, and the barbers did it with our back to the mirror. So when they were all finished doing the marine haircut, they turned us all around and we looked in the mirror. And he said, I looked in the mirror, and there was no one there whose story I knew. So I decided I'd have a new story. I just made a new story for myself. And I did the Marines, and I left there, and I got married, and I have a wife, and I have children. I got the, I got, I learned in the Marines, I learned how to do machines. So I learned, when I came out, I took a course in sewing machines. And I go buy that store every once in a while. And I haven't been in for a long time. But the, the, the operative word is, there's nobody there whose story I knew. And I've thought about it a lot, about how much we identify with our story, and how either disarming or uh, exciting it is to have nobody there whose story I knew. Imagine if you could get up tomorrow and have a whole new story. I said that to people once when I was teaching a class years ago. I said, imagine this. Think about it. Maybe you did this for our homework. Maybe we'll do it right now. Except I want to do the four other Harry Potters and a little bit of Lord of the Rings. Suppose, suppose you wake up tomorrow morning. Someone gives you the opportunity. Magic. In a parallel universe... Don't you sometimes have the feeling that you're living more than one life in a parallel universe? Do you? I do. There's another one of me somewhere having a life in a parallel universe. But I only live in this one, so I only intuit that that other one is there. I think I know what she's doing, but... But suppose tomorrow you can wake up in a parallel universe, let's even say on this Earth, 
And magically, it's just a parallel universe. So your whole other life is proceeding here. You don't have to worry about your family or your friends or your associations. They're all all right. And you wake up in that other parallel universe on this earth with your body and your particular talents right now. So I can't wake up uh, as a concert cellist tomorrow. I can just wake up with this body, this age, and what I know. But I can wake up anywhere in the world with no one I know around. So I can tell people, and I have some wherewithal to you know, pay for myself for a while. I get a job. But I could get a job as anything that I could get a job with my talents doing. And so could you. Do you ever think what you would do? Do you know right off what you would do? What would you do? Where? Huh? Teaching. I mean, you want to wake up in France, you want to be in Montmartre, you want to be, I mean, the United States is going to do <laughs> Make a fantasy. What else? What would you do? Yeah? So you wake up in Hawaii, you present yourself with your teaching credentials, you teach. Okay. What else? You want to wake up someplace else tomorrow? Everybody completely content with their life, or they just can't think of something else? <laughs> you want to have it as a homework for a week? Have it as a homework for a week. Maybe it's a it's not, Actually, I'm not even thinking of it as a sign of discontent. Just a sign of a parallel life in another universe. Your unlived life. Do you ever have, uh, there's an, there, who here heard of Ira Progoff ever? Oh, a lot of people. Ira Progoff used to teach a style of keeping a personal <laughs> journal. I did it for a lot of years. I taught it for a while. Where you kept a journal and, it, and, and your journal form was in a loose leaf. And the loose leaf had di different sections in it. So you wrote your dreams in one section and your something in another section and something in another section. It was actually a very, it was a good plan. Now that I'm saying it to you, I'm thinking about changing journals suddenly um, and going back to that because there was a whole section called Roads Taken and Not Taken. And all through our life, there are junctures where you could do X and you do Y. And not even junctures, not even that you lament X, but that there's a piece of you that would have developed had you done Y that didn't develop because you did X. And that's always true. And in, in truth, what I think is that we meet one of those junctures every day of our life, that we do X instead of Y. But some Xs are bigger than others, you know, that we decide to have a lifelong relationship with X and not Y. That's a significant juncture that, uh, yeah. Yogi Berra said, if you see a fork in the road, take it. <laughs> that's like, should I do A or B? Yes. <laughs> So this is just, you take the other fork in the road in your imagination, you see, what is it that would have come to fruition more had I done Y instead of X? Okay, let's go back to, uh, let's go back to Harry Potter a little bit. I'll tell you all five of them and then you see. When the happiest person in the world looks in the mirror, what's outside is the same as what's inside. You can only find the magic if you plan to use it for the benefit of others. 
Friendship and bravery are more important than cleverness. It's wise to know that everything eventually dies and that holding on to life or anything else causes suffering. And the best thing in life is to be a... The best thing in life is to be a seeker. Do you remember that? There's a place, there's a position on that uh, sort of a three-dimensional cricket that they play. Quidditch. Yeah. It's like three-dimensional cricket or rugby or something. And uh, they notice that he has a particular talent to be able to swoop down in amazing ways and catch the prize. And that position is called the seeker. And they say, we've been looking for a seeker for a long time. And at one other point in the movie, someone says, it's the best thing is to be the seeker. So I think that, which one do you want? Let's have five people each say something about each of those. Which one do you want to say something about? Yeah, you pick which one you want to say. Pick, this is a great idea. (laughs) This is now a great idea. You are going to be in a group, group one, two, three, four, and five, where for five minutes you're going to get together with your group and talk about that particular line. So now you decide which group you're going to be in when you hear these five lines. Okay? Can't be in all five groups. The best thing in life is, is to be a seeker. That's group one, okay? Group two, it's wise to know that everything eventually dies and that holding on to life causes suffering. That's group two. Friendship and bravery are more important than cleverness. That's group three. You can only find the magic if you plan to use it for the benefit of others. That's group four. And the mirror, the happiest person in the world, sees exactly the same thing in the mirror as out of it. Now, what? they're all good. What I hope you will do in your group is talk about what it reminds you of in your experience that caused you to choose that group. Why? Not only that you think it's a good thing to say, we all think they're good things to say, What is your personal example of why that rings important for you? So that can't we have 40 or 50 people here, we can't all say our personal example, but we could say it to a group. And let's see if it works out equally with numbers. Okay, group one. Best thing in life is to be a seeker. Great, that's it. No more group ones. (laughs) That's it. No, no, no. Okay, Marvin can be there. Okay, you can also. And Marv, you're the group one. So the group one is going to meet in the back, but we have to have people left over. Group two. In ba- okay, group two. That's it. <laughs> uh, it's very important to know that everything eventually dies and holding on causes suffering. Okay, that group, okay, is going to meet there. In that corner. Group three. Friendship and bravery are more important than cleverness. There you go. Group three. Going to meet in that corner. Group four. Uh, you can only find the magic if you're going to do it for the benefit of others. One, two, three, four, five. Shelley's going to be in that group. Group five is going to, four is going to be right here. We got anybody left for group five? About the mirror. Fantastic. Group five is going to be right in the middle of the room. Okay? One, two, three, four, five. And you, you're, you're on your own for how to split the time. Make sure everybody talks. And make sure that when you sit down, you have a minute of sitting quietly. 
And then you talk out of your heart. Ready, set, go. Probably 10 minutes. And you'll come back and tell us about it. Here, I'll ring the bell for you to get to your place, and I'll ring the bell when it's time to start talking. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.